Well, this morning we are in Matthew chapter 4. And so if you would open your Bible to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11. I've called this sermon the temptation of Jesus Christ. Let's start by reading our text together here. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. There have been some epic battles throughout history. Even if we just limit ourselves to the battles in Scripture, we have a a vast array of wars and battles to consider. Abraham versus the four kings in Genesis chapter 14. David versus Goliath. Jonathan and his armor bearers when they made the Philistines flee. I love the, the stories of David's mighty men. Uh, Joseph, uh, Bathshebeth killed 800 men at one time with his spear. Uh, Eleazar, one of the other mighty men, battled the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to his sword. Uh, you know, something like that happened to me once I was, I used to be a fencer and build fences and I was bashing, um, bashing holes with uh, my pry bar really all day one day and then I, I couldn't get my hand off of my off of the, the pry bar and I had to peel my hand back and then it wanted to suck, stick like this. So so cool as we think about Eleazar battling the Philistines all day until his hand couldn't be separated from his sword. Uh, another mighty man, Benaniah, uh, was struck down. He struck down, it says, two Moabite heroes that, or maybe another translation, two lion-like heroes. Uh, he also killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day and a, an Egyptian man who is called a, a, an impressive hero or a, a man of appearance. This must have been some kind of impressive Egyptian man. And, and uh, he came down and, and he, he had just a staff in his hand and he took that man's spear and he killed him. Epic battles throughout Scripture. But never before did two more impressive foes battle than in what we have in our text. The devil versus Jesus Christ. And this battle was infinitely more important than any other battle. The stakes were really the highest possible because if Jesus had lost, what would have happened? Now, Scripture says that that uh, that Jesus didn't sin, but if we think about what would have happened if Jesus did sin, if He would have sinned, He would have sinned as the God-man that He was. That means that for Jesus to have sinned, God would have sinned. Or at least God the Son would have sinned. Now, Scripture says God cannot sin, and so perhaps if Jesus sinned, perhaps God the Son would have divided Himself from the man of Jesus, from the human nature of Jesus. But whatever would have happened here, in the, in the first case, the Trinity is divided against itself. God is divided. In the second case, the person of Jesus is divided. But whatever would have happened, and again, we're dealing with hypotheticals, so it's, it's impossible to know what would have happened since it didn't happen. But whatever would have happened in both cases, 
salvation would have been thwarted. God's purpose would have been hindered. God's glory in the work of creation and in the work of redemption would have been undermined. In redemption, the work of God would have been undermined because we would no longer have a Savior. God's God's promises would have no longer been valid, no longer been true. The things that He had promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the the salvation that He promised to David and the prophets would have had to have been laid aside. He would have had to take them out of heaven and send them to hell. Our salvation too would have been destroyed if Jesus had sinned. And God's glory and creation would have been undone as well because uh, the the work of redemption is what God is going to use to ultimately fulfill His original purpose for the creation. And so if Jesus would have sinned, that too would have been left undone. And God would have likely had to forsake this creation in embarrassment and start fresh. Now, I have to say that that all of this is impossible. God didn't plan for Jesus to fail, and His promises and His purposes cannot be thwarted. And I believe a solid scriptural case can be made for the fact that Jesus could not have sinned, that it was impossible for Jesus to sin. But still, in our text, Jesus was genuinely tempted in His humanity. And He had to resist the temptations of the devil. He had to deny the desires and the weaknesses of His human nature. And so this was a real battle, even if victory was guaranteed And so much was at stake. Really, all of history, all of history from the creation of the world hinged on this moment as Jesus stood against the devil in an epic battle. On the one side, we have Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Two natures joined together in one person. He had a sinless human nature joined together in an inseparable union with the, the divine nature. He had come to do His Father's will, John 4.34, John 6.38. He had come to make atonement. He had come to to give His life a ransom for many, Matthew 20.28. He had lived up to this point a perfect and sinless life, entirely without sin up till this point in His life. But now He was about to start three years of difficult ministry. He would begin to take on the training of the disciples. He was about to start preaching the Word of God, calling the nation of Israel to repent. And persecution would soon rise against Him. Soon He would be resisted and ultimately He would face crucifixion. Jesus is now entering a a new and a much more difficult season of His earthly life. On the other side, we have the devil. He goes by many names in scriptures. First, he is Diabolos, uh, the, the devil, Diabolos, the slanderer, it means. Diabolos translates the Hebrew word Satan, which is, again, the adversary. The Hebrew Satan uh, means to be at enmity with, or to be hostile towards, or to be, uh, to make an enemy of. And again, one who accuses fits well here because an accuser is the one who has at enmity with you, who's hostile towards you. He's making accusations against you. Another name from the Greek is, is very similar to the Hebrew Satan. It's Satan or Satanas. Uh, it means enemy, adversary. And in Scripture, this word satanos is always used as a a title or as a name of the devil. One uh, lexicon says it literally means adversary. You could translate it Satan or the Satan. It usually has the article with it, the Satan, the adversary, the the enemy. The idea says, says there, quote, in a very special sense, the enemy of God and all of those who belong to God. And again, you could translate it simply Satan or the enemy. Another name for Jesus, Jesus' adversary here is Belzebul. Belzebul. And in the Old Testament, this comes from Baal-zebub. We read about Baal-zebub in Isaiah a few weeks ago. We saw that. Baal-zebub, the Lord of the flies. Baal-zebul would mean Lord of the filth, and you can kind of see flies hanging around the filth, and so there's kind of some some debate about whether that should end with an L, Lord of the filth, or with a B, Lord of the flies. 
But in the New Testament, Baal-zebul was seen as the prince or the ruler over the hostile spirits. In Matthew 12 and verse 24, the Pharisees heard that Jesus had cast out demons and they said this, quote, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And so Satan, the devil, is the prince or the ruler over the demons. In Matthew 13 and verse 38, it calls the devil the evil one. And the next verse calls him the enemy. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12 as we consider who this enemy of Jesus Christ is. Revelation chapter 12. Verse 7 there says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Here is Satan. He's called the dragon. And notice he has angels. This dragon has angels. The dragon and his angels fought against Michael and uh, the angels that were with him. And so the devil has angels. He's over the principalities and the powers, the evil spirits in the world. And the devil is identified as well here as that ancient serpent. He's the one that tempted Eve in the garden. He's the one who is called the deceiver of the whole world. Now verse 10 breaks into praise because this wicked being is cast into earth. But look at verse 12 there. It says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come to you in a great wrath because he knows that his time is short. The devil knows that his time is short and so he's doing what he does with great wrath. The devil is a powerful being in Ephesians 6 11 and 12 were warned against the schemes of the devil. That word means the strategies of the devil. He's a schemer. He's a, a strategizer. He's an intelligent being. And he is over what Ephesians 6.12 calls spiritual forces of evil. These wicked spirits are called rulers and authorities in that context could be translated powers. Also, uh, a third category in that context, cosmic powers of this present darkness. And if we think about this, if these beings are rulers and powers, how much more must the ruler of these beings be? How much more powerful must he be? Well, the battle is set. Jesus Christ versus the devil. One, a, a mighty and wicked spirit. The other, a righteous God-man. Invincible as God and yet susceptible as man. Now, last week, we saw Jesus' baptism in uh, chapter 3. And the Spirit came upon Him in verse 16. And the Father declared in, in chapter three seventeen, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the wording was the Father's declaration. The, the wording of that declaration was an echo from two passages of Scripture, Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Psalm 2 calls the, the Messiah my Son and promises Him the nations as His inheritance and the ends of the earth as His possession. He would rule the nations with a rod of iron. Isaiah 42 identified Jesus as the servant of Yahweh. This ties him in with all the servant songs in Isaiah 42, 49, uh, particularly Isaiah 53, where we see that the, the suffering servant, the, the Messiah, is going to suffer as a servant to make atonement for the sins of his people. Isaiah 42, verse 1 says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus is the Father's chosen. He's the one in whom the Father delights. The, the Holy Spirit is upon Him and He will rule the nations. Now, last week as we were looking at the implications of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 being declared about Jesus, 
I said this, I said, quote, by joining these scriptures together, the Father declares Jesus as Messiah, Son of God, servant of Yahweh, accomplisher of salvation, and the rightful ruler of the nations, the one in whom he is well pleased. Now, immediately after this testimony from the Father, the devil comes to test or to tempt Jesus. And this is a a test of what the Father declared. The Father had declared Him Son and Servant, and now the devil comes to test this thing. We're going to look at our text this morning under three headings. We, We can call them three temptations that Jesus overcame in the wilderness that prove He is both Son of God and Servant of Yahweh. Three In case you're taking notes, I'll give it to you again here and try to give it to you slow enough. Three temptations that Jesus Christ overcame in the wilderness that prove He is both Son of God and servant of Yahweh. The first temptation that Christ overcame that proves He is both Son of God and servant of Yahweh is number one here, the temptation to doubt the Father's provision. The temptation to doubt the Father's provision. We see that in verses 1 to 4 of our text. The temptation to doubt the Father's provision. Verse 1 says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The word translated tempted there can refer to any kind of test, whether the test involves, uh, when the test involves the possibility of evil, we typically translate it Tempted, but that could be any kind of test to, to prove something, to test something, to show that it's what it's worth, that it's good, to test that it's true to what it, what it claims to be. And so it could be just any kind of test or it could be a temptation. Here, both ideas are likely in view. Note here the two agents involved. There's a temptation from the devil, but a test from the Lord. The construction there in where it says by the spirit is really the same as when it says by the devil. And so Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tested or tempted by the devil. Jesus was led by the spirit to be tempted by the devil. And the spirit and the father intend this as a test, an opportunity to show that that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son, that He is the suffering servant, a, a, a test to show the quality of Jesus Christ. This test will test Jesus' commitment to His Father's will. It will test what kind of a Savior He will be. It will, it will test the foundation upon which Jesus' ministry would be built. The devil, on the other hand, intends to tempt Jesus, to incite him to sin. I think he really actually hopes to destroy Jesus Christ and to divide the Trinity. God means it for good, whereas the devil means it for evil. And this shows us that although the devil is a mighty foe and he might prowl around like a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour, he's really under God's control. He's really a tool in God's hand. His wicked purposes are tools that God uses for His good purposes. Here, His temptation of Christ is the instrument that's going to reveal to us the glory of Jesus Christ. He wants to make Christ fall. He ends up showing us how much Christ can stand. He wants to ruin Christ But he ends up showing us the splendor of Jesus Christ. And so God is sovereign over the devil. Verse 2 says, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. What What a great verse this is. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Luke 4, 2 tells us that he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And this shows us Christ's humanity. He was hungry. And the devil now comes to him at the end of this 40-day fast, at the moment of his hunger, and he seeks to use Jesus' humanity, Jesus' hunger against him. He seeks to use it to his advantage. This is part of his scheming or his strategy against Jesus Christ. The devil is a nasty being. We'll see this more and more as we work through this text. In verse 3, he comes to Jesus 
with the first temptation. Verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Here's another name for the devil in our, in our verse here. He is the tempter. And he came and he says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He, he knows that Jesus is hungry. And so he tempts him to make bread for himself. Now, we need to really slow down here and just understand the nature of this temptation. In chapter 15 of this gospel, for example, Jesus is going to take seven loaves and a few small fish, and he's going to use that to miraculously feed 4,000 men. Plus, on top of that, there's, there's however many women and children that were there, but 4,000 men, and Jesus miraculously feeds them with seven loaves and a few small fish. Verse 33 of Matthew 15 tells us that They were in a desolate place when this happened. And so obviously, miraculous creation of food when you're in a desolate place is not sinful in and of itself. Matthew doesn't say this directly, but the fact that the Spirit led him to the wilderness for this test probably means that God has directed Jesus to fast at this time. And the way that Jesus replies to these temptations helps us to understand what's behind them. Jesus' answer in verse 4 shows us that life is to be more than food. The devil says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones. Now, in the Greek construction of this, if doesn't mean that Satan wants Jesus to prove, um, or or it doesn't mean here that Satan wants proof whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. The the way if works here is is it sets up a condition that is assumed actually to be true. So it, it would be something like this. If you are the Son of God and I assume that you are, or I believe that you are, then here's what you should do. So if this, and, and it kind of brings the, the the one who is questioned to think about it. Am I the Son of God? Yes, I am. Okay, th- this is what I want you to do because you are the Son of God. Some people say, You could translate it since, but since doesn't bring that question up. If you're the son of God, then, and I, and I believe that you are, I assume that you are, then go ahead and make these stones into loaves of bread. The the devil believes, the devil knows that Jesus is the son of God. But what he's implying though is that the son of God should not have to be going hungry in the wilderness. What, what he's doing is he's, he's drawing out the implications of Jesus being son of God. Also assumed with this is that if you're the son of God, as the son of God, Jesus has the power to turn stones into bread. If you think about this, this could be no kind of temptation for us. Right? Only the Son of God has this kind of power. This could only be a temptation for Him. If Jesus didn't have the ability to do this, it would be no temptation at all. And so this temptation is all about getting Jesus to use His power as the Son of God to avoid the suffering that's implied with His role as the servant of Yahweh, as the suffering servant. And actually, really, all three of these temptations are aimed at trying to get Jesus to use his power to avoid suffering and take the privileges that he was promised as son of God without going through the humiliation and the suffering of the way of the cross as the servant of Yahweh. And so here, the temptation is to doubt the father's provision, to doubt the father's provision. It's as though the devil says, think about it, Jesus Are you the son of God? Is this how God treats his beloved son? You should be living in a palace somewhere. You shouldn't be starving in the wilderness. As son, you have the authority and the right to save yourself from this suffering, from this hunger. Make some bread. Don't wait for the father. He doesn't seem to be coming through on this one. Just go ahead and use your power to make some bread and deliver yourself from this difficulty that the father has put you in. This is no way for a son of God to be treated. Now here's something that's really cool about our Savior. As he is fasting in the wilderness, being tested by his Father, he's actually thinking and meditating on another test that the Father gave in the wilderness. He's meditating on Scripture during this 
test. And how do we know that? Well, all of his replies to Satan begin with, it is written. And all of them come from Deuteronomy 6 to 8, which remembers Israel's test in the wilderness. Turn with me to the, the book of Deuteronomy, and we'll see this here starting in chapter 8. We'll be kind of a few times back and forth to Deuteronomy and to some other Old Testament uh, sections that, that, are, that are involved in this wilderness here. But in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is giving instructions for the, the second generation's journey into the promised land, and he's reminding them of of the the experience of wandering through the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 8.1 says this, "The, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Now, where it says there the whole way, the the idea there is that they should remember while they're living and multiplying in the land and while they're going in and while they're taking possession of the land from verse 1, the whole time they're to remember that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so the Lord led Israel in the wilderness, it says, to test what was in their heart, whether they would keep His commandments or not. And Israel was to remember this the whole way, even into the, their possession of the promised land. God had humbled Israel and let them hunger so that they might learn an important lesson. Again, in verse three, that, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That was the purpose of the test. That was why God let Israel hunger in the wilderness. And that's exactly what Jesus then quotes to the devil in our text, Matthew 4 and verse 4. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, the fact that Jesus says man here just again points to his humanity. We've been going through Matthew and seeing so often his deity But we need to remember too that Jesus is fully man as well. He sees himself as a man and he quotes this to the devil. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus basically tells the devil that there is more to life than food. Obeying God and his commandments is more valuable to Christ than avoiding hunger. Jesus had said in John 4.34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Or John 5.30, I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Or John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. For Jesus Christ, obeying God and His commandments is more valuable than avoiding hunger. Jesus is absolutely committed to doing his father's will. And at that moment, he realizes and recognizes that his father's will for him is to test him in the wilderness. And he's going to trust the father to provide food at the proper time, at the appropriate time. He will not doubt the father's provision. Well, the, the devil wasn't done with Jesus, and, and this first temptation really kind of sets the way for another temptation. Uh, the second temptation of Jesus that Jesus overcame in the wilderness that proves that he is both son of God and servant of Yahweh is number two, the temptation to test the Father's protection. Second temptation again, the temptation to test the Father's protection. And we see this in verses 5 to seven, the second temptation. Verse five says, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And we'll just stop there for now. Now, we don't know 
what form the devil took when he appeared to Jesus. We, we don't really, we're not told very much. He just came to him. Uh, perhaps he looked like a man, which is, which is how other angels often appear in scripture, but, but maybe not. We're not told exactly what kind of form he took. The other thing we can't be exactly sure of is how the devil took Jesus to the holy city. Uh, he took him to Jerusalem. That's the holy city. He sent him, set him on the temple. Uh, it could be that, that they just appeared on the temple all of a sudden. It, it, it seems unlikely that they walked from the wilderness of Judea to the temple or that they flew there. It, it's possible that this was some kind of a vision experience. And, uh, and, and really, the, the vision experience seems kind of likely because in the next temptation, the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Now, there's no mountain where that could be done. Even on the clearest day, there's no high mountain where you could see all the kingdoms of the world. And so, and especially no mountain in Palestine where this could happen. And so it's likely that the third temptation involves some kind of a visionary element. And it could be that's what's happening in this temptation as well. So the devil takes him to the holy city and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. Verse 6, the devil said to him, he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The if statement in verse 6 is the same as we saw in verse 3. The devil knows again that Jesus is the Son of God. And uh, he, Jesus knows that he's the Son of God as well. There's no doubt about that. The Father has already proclaimed that in chapter 3 and verse 17. The, the statement is really designed to make Jesus ask about the implications of being Son. It, it would be something like this. If you are the Son of God, and I believe that you are, then here's what you should do. And the temptation is really to test the Father's protection. And here's where we, we begin to see how crafty the devil is. Jesus just told him that he would trust the Father to provide. Jesus just quoted Scripture to resist the devil. And now Satan seeks to turn those things against Jesus. It's like he says, yes, Jesus, as Son of God, the, the Father will protect you. The, the Father promises to protect all those who trust in Him. In fact, I was just reading in Psalm 91 the other day, and it says there, Psalm 91.11, For He will command His angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so go ahead, Jesus, throw yourself down, because there's nothing going to happen to you, because the Father is your protector. Now, some people understand this as a, a public display, that this jump and, and the, the rescue by the angels would have been seen and then people would have recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, I'm not sure that there were witnesses here, but other than Jesus or the devil, that Matthew doesn't really highlight that. The, the first test was get, to get Jesus to use his power. Jesus said, in effect, no, I will trust the Father. And now the devil tempts Jesus to do something which would prove the Father's care. It's like the devil says, oh, you trust the Father. Good. Good for you. Let, let's see Him protect you. Let, let's put it to the test. Let's test if God is really with you or not. And again, this would likely not have been much of a temptation for me or for you. The devil would have have trouble tempting most of us to try to jump off the roof of our house to test the Father's um to test the Father's care. The, the pinnacle of the temple, the, the, the pinnacle, that word is literally the little wing of the temple or a little wing. And it refers to any kind of a projection. It's a rare word. But most think that this would refer to the eastern tip of the temple that overlooked the Kidron Valley below. Now, to jump from that eastern tip of the temple would into the Kidron Valley below would be a jump of about 450 feet. Uh, the Josephus says to stand on that spot and look down would make people dizzy from the height and the, the view from there. And so again, probably not much of a temptation for us, but again, Jesus is Son of God. Jesus is unique, and He has a total trust in His Father and would believe that God would protect Him through any and every danger. 
But once again, Jesus remembered Israel in the wilderness. Israel had tested the Lord in a similar way to what Satan was doing. And so let's turn to Exodus 17 and we'll see that there. Exodus chapter 17. All the congregation of the, I'm starting in verse one here. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with his people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold... I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of that place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, Massah sounds very much like Nassah, which is the, the Hebrew word for tempting, uh, Meribah is the idea of quarreling in that word. And so uh, he called the place Masa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? That was really the test. The test was in asking the question, is the Lord among us or not? Israel had no reason to doubt. God had shown over and over again that he was among them, that he was with them, that he would lead them from Egypt into the promised land. And if they would have trusted the Lord and waited on Him, He would have provided water at the proper time. Jesus, however, would not test the Lord. He refused to do anything that would force God to show His protection. In effect, Jesus says, I will trust my Father to protect me, and there is no need to test it. If and when He wants to protect me, He will. Jesus was not deceived by Satan's use of Scripture. He quoted back to him another Scripture, again from Deuteronomy, this time from Deuteronomy 6.16. Matthew chapter 4, verse 7, uh, Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16, the full verse is, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. And again, Massa is close to the Hebrew word for testing or, or to test. And so Jesus compared Scripture with Scripture. Sure, Psalm 91 says that God will protect His people, but that doesn't mean that we should put ourselves in harm's way in some kind of exhibition. Jesus is saying here that He won't make demands on what God should or shouldn't do to protect Him. If the father wants to bring difficulty into his life, he won't question the father's plan. He won't ask, is the Lord with me or not, every time a trial comes along into his life. Jesus says, I am the son and I'll trust the father to protect me how he thinks best. Even if it means some difficulty in the present time, I trust him to protect me through whatever happens. I will not put God to the test. And so Jesus overcame the temptation to test the Father's protection. He is both Son of God and the suffering servant, and He will not use His status as Son to avoid the suffering of accomplishing salvation for His people. And so now the third temptation that Jesus Christ overcame in the wilderness that proves that He is both Son of God and servant of Yahweh is number three, the temptation to forsake the Father's plan the temptation to forsake the Father's plan. This is in verses 8 to 11. The devil isn't done yet, and now he drops all subtly, and he offers everything that he has to offer, probably even more than he has to offer. Remember, he is the father of lies after all. In verse 8, it says there again, he t- the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. 
And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship. Once again, the devil is offering Jesus something that is rightfully his as son of God. And again, the temptation involves claiming his right as son without having to go through the sufferings of being the servant of Yahweh. And Jesus will one day, remember we saw in Psalm chapter 2, Jesus will one day rule over all the kingdoms of the world. Psalm 2.8 says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But this rule, according to the Father's plan, was to come after Christ came as the suffering servant. First, He was to give His life a ransom for many, and then He would rule. But Satan here offers him to rule without the cross. He says, all you need to do is bow down and worship me. Now, whether Satan can actually do this is debatable. In certain places in Scripture, he's called the ruler of this world. For example, John 12, 31 and John 14, verse 30 or John 16, 11. Satan is called in those contexts the ruler of this world. But in that context, this world likely refers to the evil world system and not to all the world as if Satan was sovereign. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, Satan is called the God of this world with a small g. He blinds the minds of the people of this evil world. In 1 John 5.19, John says, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But again, this seems to mean the unsaved world lies in the power of the evil one, and not that everything in the world is under the power of the evil one. Scripture everywhere tells us that God is sovereign over the earth, even though He allows sin for the time being. God is absolutely sovereign and in control of this world. For example, Daniel 4 verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, he says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Verse 35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? God does all His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. That's what Nebuchadnezzar came to realize, that God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth, over everything that happens in the earth. Now, all the host of heaven and all the inhabitants of the earth, the devil fits into one of those categories. And so even what the devil does, he does under the control of God. God allows the devil to do what he allows him to do. God allows it for his good purposes, whereas Satan uh, has evil purposes. What God allows the devil to do, he does for good reasons. And he does it in such a way, according to Scripture, that God is never the author of evil. He is the ultimate cause of all things, but he's never the, the one who who does evil directly himself. And so Satan has some freedom to deceive, but where God wants to, God stops him. And that's exactly what we see with Satan and Job in the, in the book of Job. And if you wanted to, you could turn to the book of Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. And we just see here that, that really the devil is God's devil. The devil is under the sovereign control of God. Remember, God is the one, the Lord is the one who had first uh, kind of pointed out Job to Satan. And uh, in Job chapter 1 and verse 12, the Lord said to him, uh, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. The Lord said to Satan, Job 1.12, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and, and Satan uh, wreaked destruction on Job's life and on his children and on his livestock and, and the, the weather and the, the, the raiders come against Job all on the same day. 
But it's because the Lord had allowed him, but he stopped him. He said, don't stretch out your hand against him. That is, don't touch his person. Don't touch his health. And so Satan goes and he does all of that. And then he comes back in Job chapter 2 and verse 2. And again, the, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Notice that, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown in his head. And see how the Lord even claims responsibility for what Satan has done. He says, you incited me against him. And all that to say that the devil can't likely give the kingdoms of the world to whoever he wants. He He's probably lying about what he can do. And, and I would just say this much, that we should never get our demonology from the devil. He is a liar and the father of lies. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 5, really the parallel text with ours, the devil took him up, took Jesus up, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And so unless God allows it, the devil really can't give all of these things to Jesus. But still, this is a temptation for Jesus Christ. Uh, He says, the devil says, I'll give you what's rightfully yours and I'll give it to you the easy way. That's what he says. And Jesus here is offered what really none of us ever will ever be offered, but he is offered the whole world. Jesus is later going to say to his disciples in, in our, in Matthew, he's going to say Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And so Jesus was offered the world in exchange for worship, but he refused. You see, Jesus will not worship the world or the devil. Jesus knows the only one who is worthy of worship is the Lord. And so the glory of the world is not worthy to be compared with the glory of God. And Jesus replies in verse 10, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Once again, quoting God's word from Deuteronomy, Jesus tells Satan, that only the Lord God is to be worshipped and served. Jesus says that He will worship and serve His Father. He will remain the Son in whom the Father is well pleased by staying faithful to the Father's plan. He will serve the Father in the Father's way. He will trust the Father to provide for Him, to protect Him, and to lead Him in the way that He should go, even if that way is the difficult path of suffering and bearing the cross. Our Savior was committed to glorifying God, whatever the cost. Matthew 4.11 says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. God is faithful, and when the test was done, the devil left him, and now those things that the devil suggested are given to him in the Father's good time. The angels now come, and they were ministering to him. The the fact that they were ministering indicates that there was an ongoing ministry of the angels to Christ. That word there, translated ministering, has the idea in it of of serving tables, of waiting on tables. And part of their ministry to Jesus would have included supplying Him with food. And so Jesus Christ passed the test. He is victorious. He overcame the devil. And what does this mean then for us? What does this mean? What does Matthew want us to take away from this account? 
If Jesus would be our Savior, He needed to overcome the devil. He had to remain without sin in order to pay the penalty for our sins. And this victory tells us a lot about Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, nobody had ever overcome the devil. In the history of the universe, nobody had overcome the devil. There is no sinless saint in Scripture unless we count Jesus. Nobody else overcame the devil. Everyone else had sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every foe that went toe-to-toe with the devil had failed. The nation of Israel had failed. Every single Israelite had sinned. And by overcoming here, and ultimately by overcoming at the cross, Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. Where Israel had failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeded. Israel could not save the world because they had sinned themselves. And so salvation is only through Jesus Christ because only Jesus overcame the devil. And even before Israel, when we think about our first parents, they faced a similar test, didn't they? Adam and Eve. This time, their test was not in the wilderness, but it was in the Garden of Eden. They were sinless, but not infallible. They were innocent, but capable of sin. They were in the beauty of paradise with everything they could have wanted. They had every tree of the garden for food except for the one. They had one another as companions, but they sinned in that setting, plunging our race into sin, plunging humanity into sin. But Jesus came to undo what they did. He had fasted for 40 days. He was alone except for His Father and the Spirit and the devil. And He was in the barren wilderness, but He was not deceived. And He did not give in. And now He is ready to accomplish our salvation. Because Jesus overcame sin and the devil, He can forgive your sin. He came to earth to face this battle for our sake. He didn't need to come, but He chose to come to save us. We were under God's wrath because of our sin. We were condemned, but He came to pay the penalty for sin on our behalf. He came to act as our representative. He bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we could bear His righteousness. And if we will turn from sin and trust in what He has done for us, if we trust in Him, He promises to forgive forgive all our sins and grant us peace with God. Our Savior Jesus Christ is the greatest hero because He won the greatest battle against the greatest foe for the greatest purpose of glorifying God in God's greatest work, the work of redemption, the work of salvation, of reconciling sinners to Himself. Our Savior is the greatest hero of all time. What a glorious Savior is Jesus, the one who overcame the devil by His power. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who conquered and destroyed the works of the devil. Thank You for His resisting of temptation, for His victorious stand against the devil. Thank You that because He destroyed the devil and His works, He can forgive us of our sins. He can uh, take away the power of death and grant us eternal life. Father, thank You for Jesus. Help us to worship Him. Help us to love Him. Help us to see Him for who He is. We ask it in Jesus' name for Your glory. Amen.